Enthusiasm and praising God this morning. Uh, it's right for us to sing about winning and victory, not because we're anything, but because Jesus Christ already won the victory for us. And this is the message of the New Testament, and uh, it's what we just kind of come here and have a little pep rally about on a Sunday morning. No matter how things look right now, you win. And and really, I'll pick that theme up even a little this morning. If you were traveling last week, we're in sermon number two of a series called Conversations with Christ. We're talking through the parables. They're called prayer parables where Jesus uses prayer as the theme of the parable. So you can turn to Luke chapter 18 this morning in your Bible. And I'll, I'll read for you uh, the, the parable of the unjust judge in a week we've been uh, uh, focused all our nation's attention has been focused on a judge uh, how ironic this morning that we'll we'll talk about a bad judge here for a little bit this morning let me before I read the parable for you give you a little bit of the setting in which Jesus uh, taught this uh, I'm just going to back up one page in your Bible to Luke 17 and in Luke chapter 17 verse 5 the apostles came to Jesus with this uh, request Lord increase our faith Lord we, we see you we want to be more like you we can see you're a man of great faith Lord increase our faith if you could teach us now remember they've asked him Lord teach us how to pray Lord teach us how to do this Lord teach us how to do ministry Lord teach us how to Lord show us now how to increase our faith and so in chapter 17 Jesus uh, uh, teaching is, is the whole the theme is about faith and different things and some events happen that reinforce the lesson on faith that he's trying to give them and so over there in 17 he'll talk about the mustard seed remember that story if you had the faith the size of a mustard that's all in chapter 17 and then an event happens in chapter 17 where these 10 guys who are living in a leper colony uh, these 10 lepers approach Jesus and and cry out to him for help and Jesus heals all ten lepers and they they run away to be proclaimed clean at uh, by the priest at the temple and and one of them as they were going looks down he's all clean and he said uh, I'll, I'll wait for the official proclamation and certificate and instead turns back around runs back to Jesus and falls down in front of Jesus and said thank you thank you thank you Jesus said were there not ten lepers cleansed but where are the nine? Is there only this one foreigner? That's what the scripture says. Only this one foreigner, no Jews, just this one foreigner, comes back to throw himself down to say thank you. And Jesus looks at that man and says, your faith has healed you. Your faith has made you whole. You go and live a happy and blessed life, sir. And so Jesus just teaching on faith over there in the previous chapter. And that's important because faith and faithfulness are these, are, these are, these are cousins here in our life. Our faith and what helps us be faithful, an expression of our faith. So when you come to chapter number 18 now, uh, when you come to chapter number 18, you're going to have a story. The unjust judge involves a widow. I can't just tell you the story without the background on, on widow because your Western understanding is quite quite divorced from eastern understanding on this on this topic so let, let me just talk through widow just for a moment she's a main character in the story you're about to hear widows were 
and widows are quite numerous even today in the eastern nations of the world. When you hear the word widow, you draw a mental picture. So I'm going to go ahead and let you draw it right now. Widow, draw the picture uh, in your brain. And as you're focusing now on the picture that you've drawn, let me ask you maybe, maybe two or three questions, okay? Think about the picture in your mind right now of the widow you've drawn. What color is her hair? How old is the widow? Does she own her home? With what income does she purchase her groceries and pay her electric bill? Say it louder. Her Social Security. Her hair is white. At this age, she probably owns her home. She draws her Social Security check and buys her groceries. And that is an American understanding of the word widow. When I say widow uh, to someone living in in the East, uh, Middle East, Israel, India, Nepal, Myanmar, when I say widow to someone living in the East, they draw a very different mental image than the one you just drew as an American. And let me tell you why they would. Because they marry much earlier, especially in Bible times. Teenage brides were quite, quite common. If you were 13, 14, 15 years old, there's a very, very good chance your parents would match you up with somebody else uh, talking to their parents and strike a deal and receive a dowry and marry you off at 12, 13, 14, 15 years of age. That is not uncommon at all. Now add to that social condition one more social condition. In the first century, uh, the Roman world, as we, we call it, the, the mortality rate was extremely high, much different than it is for your understanding in this modern era. In Roman society, one half of all children died from childbirth to age 10. Now that's startling to us, but if you'll do some research, you'll see that it is true as best they can figure out. One half of all children died either at childbirth or age 10. So the life expectancy was not good at all. The mortality rate was very, very high. One half of all children died before the age of 10. Let's say it that way. And the average for, for all of society, the average lifespan for everyone, if you did make it past age 10, if you took the average of everyone, the average life expectancy was between 35 and 40 years of age. And of course, in this one, you see the Charlemagnes and the Alexander the Greats and all these people conquering the world by the age of 30 and dead by 33. Uh, they, no, no one lived long. It was, a, it was an era of disease and warfare and no modern science and, and medicine and all the things you know that prolong our lives. And uh, they had none of that. And so the, the average life expectancy was about 35 or 40. So you imagine marrying at 15 and, and you know, your husband dies at 30. So now you're beginning to draw a very different picture. It was very common for widows to be in their 20s or 30s. And this is exactly why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14, this is why I instruct the younger widows to remarry. Good night, you're only 25 years old, remarry. Uh, you, you know, let, let God bring someone into your life and y'all live a happy life and and you're still childbearing age and you know what I'm saying y'all y'all go on and build a family together and be happy that's first Timothy 5 verse 14 Paul says let the younger widows 
remarry. And, and don't let them be a burden to anybody. Just let them get right back in the, and, and, and build, build a family and have a husband and, and, and go for it. Now, in America, we see groups of widows. Or let me say it another way. In America, let's say class of people, that sounds right. But we see widows as a group of people. When, when we talk about widows, we're talking about a group of people from an American point of view that society should look out for. In America, if I say here's a group of widows or she's a widow, this is someone we expect our, our children to take care of. So, and I just want to give a shout out. Listen, the one thing the Eastern cultures uh, sometimes do much better than we do is, is respect and care for their, their elders. And so uh, I just want to, there should be a little revival among God's people here of taking care of, of our parents and, and, and those older than us and not, not abdicating that off to somebody else to, to, to care for our family. You take care of your family as much as you can and God will honor you. God will bless you, you for that. Now, you're thinking, okay, well, she's a widow, but here's the deal. In the East, the widow has no right of inheritance regarding the home, property, or wealth. So when her husband dies, the assets either go to the, boy, the, the male heirs, the children, or, or the assets stay with the husband's family. Are you with me? She has no right to the home, land, the assets, and, and quite often the land's taken away from her, and, and, and she, she gets none of that. You're thinking, well, her children will take care of her. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Uh, the widow was often outcast and, and, and cast out on the streets and live on the streets. And, and I guess it would be a great place right here I could give you guys an awesome shout out. Uh, the people at Cornerstone have been wonderful, wonderful friends to widows. The Bible commands us to be a friend of the widow and the orphan. Jesus commands this in the New Testament. We've tried to practice it. And there have been many times where I was heading to India and I would say, hey, let's take up, if, you, if he's got an extra $20, give it right now. And, and I'm going to go minister to a group of widows while I'm in the east. And many times I've taken an offering from this body right here. Gone to the bazaar when I land. That's the open marketplace. And, and bought bag, 50 pound bags of rice. Kilos of sugar. Vegetable. I just go through there with, with, with some friends. And I just spend two or three hundred dollars real quick. And just buy stuff. Sometimes some clothes. And, and, and I will say to our disciples, let's go find some widows. And we go find a group of widows, and we'll give them a 50-pound bag of rice and a kilo of sugar and, and some clothes and, and, and sit down with them. And in those few minutes, say, we're giving this to you because Jesus Christ commands us to love you. And in those moments, we've shared the gospel. And in those moments, we've led many of those widows to faith in Jesus Christ. Just because of your gift of love. Now you don't know, their, you've never seen their faces. But you're going to see their faces one day. And God is going to richly reward you for the gift of love that you gave to them. Having never met them or never seen them. The Bible says if you have given a cup of water in the name of Jesus Christ. You will not lose your reward for this. And you guys have given a whole lot more than a cup of water. And I want you to know it's resulted in the salvation of many of the people like the woman in this story if the woman she could be outcast and, and a lot of times they'll come together and live just a group of them will live just like that like a little colony of, uh, of widows there are whole cities in India that are just widow cities where all the widows go to live and try to take care of each other 
as outcasts. If the woman did stay, after being widowed, did stay with the husband's family, she'll likely be treated as a servant going forward now. She no longer has the standing. She no longer has privileged status in the home. Once the husband dies, now she kind of reverts to servant position. And they'll treat her as a servant. She'll do cooking and cleaning and, and wait on the rest of, of the family. You say, well, why didn't she leave? Well, a good question. She can, but if she goes back to her father's house, so her husband dies, she said, I'm out of here. And so she goes back to my family, go back to her father's house. If she goes back to her father's house, then the dowry that her family received, <laughs> the dowry that her family received has to be repaid to the husband's family. And if the family at this moment in their life discovers that they don't have this money, then the widow, if she says, I'm going, oh, we don't have the money, then the man's family can say, then we demand you be sold on the auction block as a slave to repay the debt that you owe us for leaving. <laughs> now, that's a little bit different story, isn't it? And so when you hear that, you're saying, Pastor, that's jacked up. That's messed up. This is a messed up kind of a society. This kind of life that you're describing is just not fair. Okay, that brings us to Luke chapter 18. I think you've got the picture in your head. This is why Luke 18 opens like this. Then Jesus spoke a parable to them, verse 1, that men ought always to pray and not to lose heart. You see, when life, life many times comes at us with overwhelming difficulties. And it's not one thing, it tends to be several things, and they come all at once, and it's that pile-on effect, like you're just being dogpiled by adversity. And when it comes at you just bombarding you with adversity, what the result is, is it causes us to lose hope. It causes you to have hopelessness. It makes you want to give up and say, nothing's working out for me. There is no, I cannot, where I'm standing, see a way to pay my debt. I can't see a way to get healthy. I can't see a way to get out of the mess I'm in. I can't see a way forward. And when we can't see a way forward, we tend to lose all hope. So Jesus said, Luke 18, verse 1, men ought to pray. We ought to pray. And not to lose hope. <clears throat> because when we pray, something's going to happen. It's not hopeless. You say, I don't have anything. That doesn't mean it's hopeless. You, you have not because you, you've not yet asked. Ask in my name and you will receive that your joy may be full. You say, well, I don't see a way forward. Okay, you've got to ask then for outside intervention. Just because it looks bleak doesn't mean it's hopeless. We still have prayer. <clears throat> so he's going to talk to us about about prayer. Now, listen as Jesus tells the parable of the unjust judge, verse 2. There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now, there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. Now, we don't know who the adversary is. We just know this widow was not being treated fairly. It could be her in laws, it could be her kids, it could be a bill collector. We don't know. But someone's tormenting this widow. <clears throat> she goes to the judge for help. Verse 4. And he would not for a while. So he put her off. He wouldn't help her. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, 
lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. Shall not God avenge his own elect, the chosen people, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now again, let's think about the parable. Widow comes the judge, help me out. I need relief from my adversary, not be treated fairly. He says, drop dead, don't care. I don't regard men or God. I just don't care about anybody. And, and uh, tough luck lady. And then after a while he said, gosh, she's w- wearing me out. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do something for her because she's, she's wearing me out. Now, if I asked you, and I won't take the time, but if I asked you this morning to summarize this with a few sentences in your notes, you'd very likely write, in the story we are like the widow, and, and we come seeking help from God. And even if God doesn't answer our prayers, we are to just keep on with persistence, asking and asking until we wear God down with our requests. <clears throat> and if we persist in prayer, then God will eventually relent and give us what we want. But my question to you this morning is, is this really what Jesus is trying to teach us? Matter of fact, is this even good theology <laughs> uh, to think that you can manipulate God in, in such a way? I've often been in the grocery line at the grocery store where they strategically place all the candy. And maybe you've lived through a scenario. Let's just talk one through. Daddy, I want these Skittles. No, these are bad for you. They'll rot your teeth. But Daddy, I want these Skittles. No. Daddy, I need these Skittles. Have you ever had that? The language starts changing. I really need these, these Skittles. Daddy, 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 Daddy. Now, one of two responses are typical. You're either going to, to, to get angry or you're going to relent and give the kid the stinking Skittles to shut him up. Right? Both of which are bad parenting moves. For you to lose your temper or for you to relent and give in to the child, you've taught him a lesson now, taught the little girl a lesson now. You've taught him if they just keep badgering you <clears throat> that they can manipulate you And so we grow up to be adults and we think the same thing about God. We think we can badger God into what we want him to do because it becomes patterned behavior for us. But this is not a parable where Jesus at the end says to us, go and do likewise. You don't find that language here. This is not a a go and be like the widow, wear me down every chance you get. Or or go and be like the judge, you're neither person in this story. This is a how much more parable. This is one of those parables that moves from the lesser reasoning to the greater reasoning. This is one of those parables where he says, you see, if this is true, how much more is this thing? If it's true in the small form, it's going to be really true in the big example that I'm going to give. Notice about this judge, it's in verse 2 and in verse 4, but let's look at verse 2. Notice about the judge that he did not fear God or respect people. What a horrible judge. (laughs) You know, this is the kind of thing where these are the kind of people that run your country or run your courts and and are in, in elected. No wonder societies get in a bad way, right? Here's a guy, and by his own admission, he said, I'm a horrible judge. I, I don't like you, and, and I don't care, give a rip about God. I'm just doing whatever I want to do. Uh, so I want you to see that, that uh, he's not a good public servant whatsoever. <clears throat> and, and if you were one of his constituents, you, 
God help you. You know, uh, he finally relented in the story and decided to help the widow. But when he wrote his, uh, what do we call it, Sean, his opinion paper on why he decided the way he decided that the justices will write, in his opinion paper, it's, it's found in verse 4 and 5, read his opinion paper on why he finally made the judgment he made and what his thinking was as he made it. Let me put it up in multiple versions to read. For a while he refused, but afterward he said, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so she will not beat me down by her continual coming to me. There's his opinion piece right there. That's why I decided the way I decided. God's word. For a while the judge refused to do anything, but then he thought, This widow really annoys me. Well, he's be, being honest now, isn't he? Okay, although I do not fear God or even respect people. I'll have to give her justice, otherwise she'll keep coming to me until she just wears me out. NIV, for some time he refused, but finally he said, even though I do not fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually, look how this is worded, come and attack me. She's going to stick an ice pick in me one day if I don't go ahead and do something for her. Wow. Now, what, what I'm saying to you is when you read the opinion of why he chose what he chose, the reasoning behind his decision ultimately was completely self-serving. He didn't say, well, I want to help her. It's the right thing to do. I want to help her. Society needs to take care of it. I want to help her. Her family's mistreating her. I want to help her. Somebody took away her home. I want to help her. She's been put out on the street. I want to help. No. <laughs> I want to help her because it's the right thing to do before God. No. He said, I want to help her because I want to be comfortable. I want to help her because I don't want to get whacked walking to work one day. I, I want to help her for my own personal comfort. And you can just say right here, what a jerk. You know what I'm saying? So when Jesus told the story, he definitely made the judge out to be a, be a real jerk. The parable is not about how we are like the widow. The parable is not, certainly not about how God is like the judge. The parable is about how God is not like the judge. That's what the parable is about. God is not like earthly rulers who won't give you any help. And if they do give you any help, there's likely a selfish motive behind what they're doing for their own personal gain or comfort. Does that make sense? God is not like that. And if this, if Judge Jerk would eventually relent and help the woman, how much more will your loving Heavenly Father respond to you when you cry out to Him? And He won't wait around and beat around the bush and figure out an angle and find out what's best for God. He loves you and He'll act on your behalf to help you. This is a parable that says, I want to show you this story to show you God is not like this jerk. God is a loving, gracious, heavenly Father. And again, let's look at verse 7 and 8 where Jesus now states the, the, the outcome of this. And will not God give justice to his elect, to, to you, to his children who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Look at God's words. Won't God give his chosen people justice when they cry out to him for help day and night? Is 
God slow in helping us, I can guarantee that he will give you justice quickly. Look what the NIV says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and how do they get it? Quickly. If an unjust judge will help a widow with long delays and lots of red tape and eventually after a long time of badgering how much more quickly and wonderfully will God answer our prayers when we cry out to God day and night? The point of the story is simply this. God delights to quickly answer your prayers. Now I just want to caution you. I'm going to talk about quickly in a minute. But quickly in your mind and quickly in God's mind might be slightly different. Okay? So just be patient with me here for a moment. Let, let me talk about myself just for a second my dilemma is not that I lack persistence in prayer been praying since I was a little bitty fellow my dilemma is that I sometimes feel like God doesn't really care about me my dilemma is when I come to God to pray to him I I pray to him thinking well God doesn't really understand my situation here I've got to ask God for help and I have to explain to him the mess of man God, here's the, you ever find yourself explaining your situation to God? God, here's the mess I'm in. As if he doesn't know. He's God. My dilemma is not that I don't pray. My dilemma is that I pray with a bad attitude towards God because he's allowed, he's allowed me to experience some mistreatment in this world in which I live. And so I come to him with a chip on my shoulder saying, I guess you don't really love me or you wouldn't have let me experience this. But I know I've got to pray, so I'm going to talk it out with you, even though you don't care. And even though you're probably not going to do anything for me. But I know pastor told me I'm supposed to be praying, so I'm going to go ahead and pray. Now, what, what I'm saying is when we approach God with such attitudes, like you really don't get us, or you really don't understand how we feel, you don't really know what we are going through, God, you're showing great disrespect to God. When you come at him with that attitude. Because we are assuming something about the character of God which absolutely is not true. Let me see if I can give you an example. Imagine your child coming to you. Daddy, I know you really don't care about me, but here's my situation. Hey, 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 Dad. I, I know you could never understand what it's like to be young and vibrant and, and in love and and, you know, and with needs and God, God, Dad, I know you don't understand what I'm going through, but here's, here's what I want to talk to you about anyway. Ima imagine your child coming to you and saying, Mom, Mom, I know you never respond to my cries for help, but here, I'm going to go ahead and make one more attempt anyway. You would, you, you, you'd want to smack somebody's face and you'd want to say to them, I do nothing but care for you. I, I mean, I, I, you know what I'm saying? My whole life is about caring for you. For, for all of these years, my whole existence <laughs> has been about earning a living and protecting and providing. I do nothing but care for you. Do you understand the illustration this morning? God, I know you don't really. What are you talking about? God says, all I do is take care of you. I, I mean, I never sleep. I never slumber. I never rest. I'm constantly protecting you. I'm constantly providing for you. Listen, if the sparrows of the air do not farm... 
and I take care of them. I mean, I'm constantly providing. I am a provider. That's who I am. I am a protector. That's who I am. I, I love. That's my character. Yes, I'm taking care of you. And yes, I understand. The trap that we fall into is to thinking that if we bombard God with enough words, then finally, in exasperation, God will say to us, Okay, here, just take the Skittles and leave me alone for five minutes. God doesn't operate that way. And no amount of your words is going to manipulate God. Let me ask you an assessment question. When you pray, do you have confidence that God cares and He will respond quickly? I mean, if you bend your knee in a few minutes and get down here before God and say, God, I'm going to bring you something very serious to me and I want to talk about this. Do you have confidence when you go to him in prayer that he wants to take care of you and he will quickly hear and respond to your prayer? I think all of us could do one thing this week, and I hope last week's sermon affected how you prayed this week. Uh, There's one thing we could all do this week is we could all practice expressing our confidence in God as we pray. In other words, we could use some language like this collectively as a, as a body this week. We could say things like this in prayer. God, you've been so faithful to care for me. And then you could go on and pray for a little bit. You could say to God, God, you have blessed me in ways I could have never imagined. We could say, God, you have listened to me blubber and cry and moan and complain. And God, I've told you things I could never tell any other living person. And God, you've always listened to my cries. You have never turned your ear away from me. We could say things like that to God. We could say things like, God, you've always responded to me with love and compassion, not in anger or in vindictiveness in any way. God, you've always been kind When I've cried out to you, we could say things like, God, as I begin to pray today, I want to just say thank you because I know you always hear my prayers. Never turn me away when I come to you. You're the best father ever. We could say things like, God, I know you know what I'm going through. And I know whatever I'm feeling right now that you feel the exact same thing that I feel. This fall, we're going to take a little time to study through the book of Hebrews. And when we do, you're going to learn so much about how Jesus feels. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, For in that he himself has suffered, since Jesus, as a man, has suffered, he was being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. You know what the book of Hebrews teaches us that Jesus was as much a man as you are. And as a man, he went through what you go through. He feels what you feel. He understands temptation. He understands unemployment. He understands betrayal. He understands relationships. He understands what life is like because he was a man. He knows you. He understands you. He gets you. And so when you come to him in prayer, you can say, God, I know you get me. Because you walked here in a body of flesh, just like I did. God, you know what it's like to have a pain. God, you know what it's like to have betrayal. God, you know what it's like to be misunderstood. God, you know what it's like to have needs. And and you want them to be filled. God, you know what it's like to have a family. He gets you. That's what I'm saying. He gets you. So let me give you my observations very quickly. Number one, does God care? 
This is the first thing we've got to settle this morning. Does God care? Now, in the story, the unjust judge did not care about justice. <laughs> justice doesn't even come up in the story hardly. He, he doesn't say, yes, I'll give you justice. She says, I want justice, but he, he's not concerned with justice at all. He didn't care even about his constituents. He only cared about himself. And this parable is contrasting the attitude of the unjust judge and the attitude of God to show you through the story that God does care about you. 1 Peter 5, I'm going to put these verses up, verse number 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Verse 7, this was my dad's favorite verse. Casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. Now leave this verse up on the screen for, for a little bit here. With your eyes on that verse and focused on what it's saying to you, cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Does God care for you? Let me ask you a question. If you prayed for something and God said no, that'll rot your teeth out. Does he still care for you? If you ask for something and God said, no, no, that'll hurt you. Gosh, if I made you rich and famous, it'd ruin your life. No, I don't want, I don't, I'm not going to do that to you. If God said no, he still cares for us? Let, let me ask you another question. If you prayed for something and God told you not now, does God still care for you? Yeah, maybe that's one of the great evidences that he does care for you, is he's saying not now. Not now. Let me give you an example. Let's suppose your 14-year-old comes to you and says, Dad, I want the keys. Listen, I've got older friends who are driving. I want to drive. Toss me the keys. I think I, got, I think I can figure this out. Dad, give me the keys to the car. You'd say, no way, Jose. And I don't mean racial slur by that, but just no way. Uh, no way. Uh, you're 14, you're not old enough to drive, no way. But listen, let a few months go by, somebody has a birthday, and that same child you told no, now at 15 you're enrolling that child in driver's ed, what changed? Just timing, that's all. Can I drive? No. Tick tock, tick tock. Can I drive? Sure, let's sign you up to learn how to drive. What changed? Timing is what changed. Learn a great lesson about life from driver's head this morning. Timing is what changed. And what I want to say is our issue is that when we go to God in prayer, we want it, and by golly, we want it now when we come to God. And many times God says, oh, it's not that the idea of you driving is a bad idea. Just no is the short answer for now. Uh, let's wait on that and talk about that a little bit later. And it might be very appropriate Later, there are many things that are appropriate later that are not appropriate right now. So not only do we need to let God answer the way that God chooses to answer our prayers, knowing that he knows so much better than we know, trusting in his goodness, but we also need to trust God's timing the same way you would want your children to trust your timing as parents. That makes a lot of sense to a parent. You want your kids just to trust your timing. A lot of times you don't want to have to explain it all to them. You just want to say, trust me, that'll be appropriate later. Not, no, no is the short answer now, or not now is the, is the answer. 
And listen, many times God's doing that to us, and we're getting resentful towards God. You didn't answer my prayer. You don't, you're not, you don't care about me. You're not taking good care of me. Oh, he's taking wonderful care of us. He's taking such good care of us. He's not going to give us the car keys when we're 14. That's how wonderful he's taking care of us. He's going to wait until we can handle I just think about the entrepreneurs and different scenarios in the room. You're saying, God, just pour this on me. Gosh, we, we know about building a business. You only, take, you only handle so much business at once. And sometimes God pour too much on uh, Say it another way. Sometimes you can get so much poured on you, you can't handle it. And so God's very wise, very judicious about knowing what we can handle and how he can put things in our life and, 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 and what we can do with it. So the big deal is this. Does God care? Yes, more than you know, more than you know. My second observation is simply this. Prayer is our present technology. Prayer is our present technology. Now, I'm just going to make some general statements here. Just, just listen very quickly. Communication is essential to any relationship. We all got that, right? Communi- if your marriage has broken down, it's because communication first broke down. It went right out the window, and, and if, 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 if parenting is breaking down, typically communication is the issue that's breaking down, or, and you'll see it in that. We're not talking anymore. We're not communicating. We're not having healthy conversations. Communication is essential to any healthy relationship. In prayer, prayer is how we communicate with God. That is, when we say healthy relationship, this is the reason prayer is part of our healthy relationship with God. It's how... We communicate with God. And surely those of you who've lived through this technology uh, revolution and explosion, you can understand this this matter. Uh, Once upon a time we had a phone mounted to the wall in our homes. Where was it? What color was it? Say it again. How many are yellow? Ours was yellow. What other color we got? Green? Who had the green phone? They only like three or four colors, so there's not many, many options here. There was a beige kind of a taupey color. Yeah, yeah, dirty white kind of a color. Now, well, how long was the cord? Yeah. And what you did is you it came with a short cord. You threw that in the trash, went to Radio Shack, and you bought that like 15-foot cord that went like this all the way down the wall so you could, you could move around the kitchen while you were. And then, then a miraculous thing happened. They invented a cordless phone, and, and boy, that was revolutionary, wasn't it? Base station and a handset, and you could go out to the backyard and talk on the phone, and we thought we were hot stuff, man. And then we got a little briefcase with a phone in it. Does anybody remember that? And then we got what's known as the, the, brick, the brick phone, and then we got a flip phone, then we got a smartphone, then we got an iPhone, and when every new technology came along, it absolutely made the technology before it completely and totally obsolete true all right right now prayer is how we have conversations with Jesus Christ but the end of prayer is not far away listen to what I'm saying now prayer is all we've got right now if we want to have a healthy relationship through communicating with our Creator prayer is what we've got right now but very soon prayer will be obsolete The return of Jesus Christ will ultimately answer every prayer you've ever prayed. The Bible says in James chapter number 5, Therefore be patient, brethren, unto the coming of our Lord. See how the farmer waits. This is our dilemma, right? Because none of us want to wait for anything. See how the farmer waits 
for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until he receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord draws nigh. The coming of the Lord is not far away and every listen, it's going to solve every problem you've got in one afternoon. It's going, to, it's going to answer every prayer outstanding that you don't know the answer to in one moment. The old hymn writer wrote these words, this robe of flesh I'll drop and rise to seize the everlasting prize. And I'll shout while passing through the air, kiss prayer goodbye. Farewell, farewell, sweet hour of prayer. You say, why did the hymn writer write such a thing? And is it theologically correct? Sure it is. Because when Jesus Christ returns for us, prayer has just become obsolete. It's passe. It's old news. Not needed anymore. You say, why would you need to pray? There's Jesus right there. You want to say something? Say it to him. It's an open conversation like we're having right now. Prayer will be toast. Now, for now, it's all you got. I'm sorry you got a brick phone. It'll be old news soon. But for now, it's all you got is to bend your knee and bow your head and bow your heart and and say to God in conversation, God, here I am and I know you love me and I know you're going to quickly respond and, and God, you've been so gracious. I bring my request to you today. Sure, not having the answer we want when we want it is difficult for us. Absolutely. But you ask yourself this morning, am I pressuring God to get on my schedule or am I conforming to his schedule? See, prayer is supposed to change things for us. When we go to God in prayer, we're supposed to get an answer. We're supposed to come away with an answer or, or, or life change. And maybe through prayer, God's trying to say to you, hey, slow down, you're only 14. Yeah, that's appropriate, just not right now. And are we trying to get God to conform to our timetable all the time? Sure we are. And that's not right. We need to come to God and say, God, you know what's best. I want it now. I'd like to have an answer to this like today. Certainly by tomorrow will be acceptable too. But after you talk to God in prayer for a while, maybe you could say to God, God, and if that's not your timing, help me to be okay with your timing. Knowing that you only want the very best for me. And let me give you my closing thought. In the meantime, in the meantime, while we're waiting for prayer to become obsolete, what about our faithfulness? This parable directs us to cry out to God and expect God to answer our prayers, but it also reminds us of our responsibility to be faithful. You see, God's part is to hear and answer our prayers but your part is to wait for the answer that is part of the spiritual exercise you you see while you're waiting god says while you're waiting for it to all come to fruition your part is just to be faithful This parable is not about our persistence in prayer and beating God down into action. Such notions are nonsensical and very, very poor theology. The two primary concerns of this parable are, number one, to focus us on the caring nature of God, who is not like 
the unjust judge. He is not an uncaring, disconnected ruler. Instead, he is merciful and gracious and generous and kind and compassionate and eager to listen and eager to assist his people. The second purpose of this parable is to focus us on staying faithful till his return happens. The way that we stay faithful according to scripture is we stay on mission. We don't just sit down and say, okay, here I am. I'm just going to sit here in church and be faithful. No, no, staying faithful means to stay on mission, continue to grow, continue to make disciples, be constant in communication with God as, as, you're, as you're interpreting and as you're interacting with the world in which you live every moment of the day. Just stay in constant communication with God. Now, this is the cool technology of prayer. It goes wherever you go. No recharge, no batteries, no, yeah, it just, it is always there. And it is a very advanced technology. The speed of light's the fastest thing we know, but there's something much, much quicker. And prayer is one of them. We can be in the throne room of God with a bowed head and, 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 and a prayer extending forth. Our job is to remain faithful, make disciples, stay on mission. And the parable ends with an assessment question by Jesus Christ. He asks us an assessment question at the end of the parable. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily, verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? You see, here's the assessment. We're asking, you're asking Jesus, will you be faithful to answer my prayers? Jesus is asking you, no, will you be faithful to stay on mission and make my disciples? You're saying, Lord, are you going to be faithful? Folks, that didn't even a, God being unfaithful is not even in the realm of possibilities. He's going to be faithful. He's going to hear your prayers. He's going to love you and care for you. The question is, will we be faithful?